Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. This may seem obvious, but sometimes it always isn't obvious. Not everyone has access to a university or other research clinic-based study to help themselves or their child with autism. Now, this isn't just a problem in autism. Think of cancer. Not everyone has access to a new clinical trial that may be the new revolutionary breakthrough that patients get access to. The key is to take what's learned from research and moved it out into the community. This is where things get tricky for autism. Now, in cancer, there are generally more resources by industry to ensure that happens, and also delivery of medications in hospitals for people with cancer are a little more straightforward than behavioral interventions delivered in community settings for autism. In autism and other developmental disorders where behavioral interventions are so important and training of clinicians, daycare workers, service providers, and caregivers is key, of course, this can be a bit trickier. Add on top of that, Parents from various backgrounds, situations, and issues of their own are recruited to deliver some of these interventions in the wild, wild west. Frankly, sometimes I think it's a miracle that things that happen in research studies ever make it out to the community. But you can thank a relatively small but very heroic group of autism researchers for making sure that happens. They aren't the ones that you hear about making big discoveries in the lab and discovering genes. They're the ones hustling communities and schools in both rural and urban settings. And when I say rural, I'm talking about no internet access rural. And when I say urban, I mean overcrowding issues ad nauseum. Two of the researchers that are part of this hugely important emphasis on implementation have published findings recently, and I want to highlight them. The first comes from screening. For years, the AAP and other organizations have pushed pediatricians to screen for autism at 18 and 24 months. Now, there's also been some recent evidence to say it should be moved up to 12 months and also further back to 36 months. But getting pediatricians to screen for autism and do it correctly has been a real challenge. They either don't do it, they skim through the modified checklist for autism in toddlers, which is the tool or they don't use the follow-up interview, or all three. I'm not trying to be critical. With things like measles outbreaks and hoverboard accidents, they have a lot on their plate. Also, if you think about it, pediatricians are not the only people who have access to children at 18 and 24 months, and may not be the only population that's qualified to screen for autism at these ages. So Connie Cassery and her group, led by Amanda Goldsrud, all at UCLA, tested whether or not daycare workers could screen for autism, and if they did screen, whether or not intervention in those that screened positive for autism would make a difference. What's important to remember here is that, number one, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force a few years ago said that there was not enough evidence to say that screening led to early intervention, which led to an improvement in outcomes. So this is an important step to address that. Number two, traditionally all of this screening and and referral for intervention takes place in a pediatrician's office, not in a daycare or other place where kids are seen on a day-to-day basis by people other than their parents, who, let's face it, need some sort of support that what they are seeing is off. They need some agreement that they have concerns and that someone else sees those concerns too. 
whether that's that the kids are not responding to their name or sharing enjoyment in other things, or whether they play appropriately with other kids. Sometimes parents need affirmation of their concerns, and the 10-minute well-child visit at a pediatrician's office is not enough. Sorry about that. Finally, the last thing, add on top that this wasn't just any daycare that they studied. Let's face it, the very waspy, somewhat affluent daycare that my daughters went to, it was more of a real-life daycare. They did this study in an urban area in a very low-resource community with kids that were ethnically diverse in L.A. They weren't messing around. If it works here, it can work anywhere. The deck was almost stacked against them, however. While the study doesn't totally address all the concerns of the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, it's definitely a good step. I want to note that there are other studies ongoing, one led by Diana Robbins at Drexel University, to fully address their concerns. The study was small, I won't lie, but that's because they started with 252 families, and of those that agreed to participate, and we'll get into that later, 40 were eligible, willing, and had kids that screened positive. Those kids were randomized into two groups, one that got an early intervention paradigm in the classroom, it was called JASPER, and one that was given the regular curriculum. By easing the criteria just a bit in what a daycare worker would be classified as quote-unquote qualified at delivering the intervention, more teachers became eligible to deliver this intervention. And while an autism diagnosis was not looked at in this study, the active intervention improved early measures of social communication compared to those who did not get the intervention. This study isn't necessarily boasting about this brand of intervention called JASPER, Rather, it shows that daycare workers can be trained to deliver early intervention in their classrooms. They can even screen for autism. And it does improve several markers of early social communication behaviors. Even if that doesn't affect an autism diagnosis per se, plenty of studies have already shown that these gains can improve the long-term trajectories of kids both with and without autism. One rub was that the consent rate of parents to participate in a study like this was low. Parents may actually prefer to be part of the intervention rather than letting someone else do it, or they may not trust what's going on, especially if there's a control arm where their child may not be assigned to the intervention. These are all implementation challenges that must be addressed. So a more basic question is, should we even expect that intervention in the community is going to work the same as intervention in a research clinic? This study aside, there are others who have looked at the efficacy of early interventions given in the clinic versus those in the community. Allison Namias at University of Pennsylvania, now at University of California, Davis, along with David Mandel, conducted what is known as a meta-analysis. It compared the effectiveness of the same interventions delivered in a clinic versus those delivered in a community setting. There are differences, and it means that more attention needs to not just see if interventions work, but if they can work in multiple settings and in real life. I asked the lead author, Dr. Namias, who is now at UC Davis, some questions about the study, and she was gracious enough to answer them. Dr. Namias, what is the most important findings of the analysis? We think that the findings from our study are important because currently not much is known about how well community intervention programs for toddlers and preschool children with autism work. 
Therefore, we combined the results from 46 different groups of children that had gotten community early intervention services to get a better picture of how effective these programs are on average. We found that children made small but significant gains in cognitive skills, as well as parent-reported communication, social, and adaptive behavior skills, which means that regular everyday community programs are having some benefit for children with autism. However, these gains from community services are much smaller than those seen from studies reporting researcher-implemented interventions, which suggests that research-supported interventions are not making their way into community programs yet. There were a few model programs associated with universities or hospitals that tended to have better outcomes. So we think that this suggests that access to experts, training, and ongoing support might be needed to make community programs better. What should families who listen to this podcast get from this study? In this study, we found that early interventions in the community were not nearly as effective as they could be. For parents and caregivers who are essential advocates for their children, this means prioritizing becoming an informed consumer of the interventions that their child receives is really important. To do so, parents and caregivers should consider the quality of the intervention program by asking questions about whether or not the program is doing things like developing specific measurable goals individualized to each child and family, monitoring goal progress regularly for treatment planning, and involving parents in the goal setting and progress monitoring process, including discussing changes to intervention programming if adequate progress isn't being seen. In addition, parents should also look for interventions that are considered evidence-based practices and based on research-supported techniques. They should ask about how providers are being trained and if providers get ongoing support. So what needs to be done to improve community-based interventions? Where should either research or funding support should be directed to improve this gap? Improving community-based interventions is a complex problem that would benefit from additional research and funding support. Community use of practices that have research to support them is influenced at a myriad of levels, including the child's skills, therapist or teacher training, program leaders' understanding of what works and policies about what services can be provided and how they'll be paid for. Therefore, we need to both understand and test ways to change the factors at the provider, agency, and policy level that help and hurt the use of practices that work. All of this falls under the domain of research called implementation science. Um, This type of work can't be done using an ivory tower armchair academic approach, but needs to include community partnered research strategies to work with community stakeholders in order to understand the unique nuances of the community settings and systems in which we would like our research supported interventions to be used. Working together, we can adapt and build upon existing interventions to better fit the community context, providers using the intervention, and the needs of the children and families that we want to benefit from these services, and test the adaptations to be sure that they're effective. Partnership will be crucial for addressing this gap. I want to thank Dr. Namias for answering my questions and for most importantly, dedicating her career to better understanding why and what works in the clinic doesn't always translate to the community and for also doing things to change it. Next week, we have a very special treat. Dr. Dan Geshwin from UCLA is going to give a webinar about his findings in studying the brains of people with autism and will post it on this podcast. There's going to be a long question and answer period, so we hope that someone asks a question that you're interested in. 
Have a great week. Thanks for listening.